21st chapter of the book of Acts. And I'm reading verses 17 through 30. Verse 17 and reading through 30, verse 30. And when he'd come, that's Paul, had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you, that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them, purify yourselves along with them, and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads, and all will know that there is nothing to the things which, they have, been, which have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the multitude and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together. Taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut." A mother was doing her last-minute Christmas shopping for her five-year-old son, and she was looking for just the right present to top off the Christmas presents. And this sales clerk was pushing this certain toy, and she protested. She said, don't you think that that's a little complicated for a five-year-old? And he declared, he said, no, he said, ma'am, this is an educational toy. Is designed to teach your children how to cope with life in today's world. However he puts it together, it'll always be wrong. Well, that might not be a bad toy, you know, to give our children. Because if there is a truth that's woven into life, it is this, that things don't always turn out like you planned them. Things often go wrong. 
In fact, uh, some wag put it to rhyme when he said, The world will not adjust itself to suit your whims to the letter. Things will go wrong your whole life long, and the sooner you know that, the better. Well, the Apostle Paul discovered that in the incident that is described in our text. Things will go wrong. Now, I want to tell you what happened in this incident, and then I want us to apply it to life. In spite of all the warnings, um, in spite of the dangers that loomed on the horizon, the apostle decided that he would return to Jerusalem, where he's not necessarily a popular figure. And when he got back to Jerusalem, his coming was received positively at first. They received him, says verse 17. They had fellowship with him, says verse 18. They um, listened to him and his counsel, says verse 18, or verse 19. They rejoiced with him, says verse 20. And then the tide began to turn. They told Paul that some of the brethren were, you know, some of the people were spreading rumors around the country that that he was encouraging the Jews, the brethren, uh, to forsake the commandments and to neglect the customs of the Jews. Now, these, was, these were only rumors. They were not true, but as is always the case, the important thing about a rumor is not whether it's true or not, but how vigorously it's told and by whom it's being told. And they were telling, spreading these rumors that the Apostle Paul was teaching the Jews to forsake the commandments and neglect, neglect the customs of the Jews. And these rumors were defaming the Apostle and damaging the church, and something had to be done. That's the problem. So we've got to have a plan to combat that. Now the plan is in verses 22 through 26. This is the plan. There were four men who had taken some sort of a religious vow, perhaps a Nazarite vow. And they had become contaminated by certain ceremonially impure things and needed purification from the temple. And in this Nazarite purification, seven days had to elapse. And on the seventh day, they shaved their heads. Now, a Nazarite would never put a razor to his head, but for purification, they would shave their heads and they would bring an offering into the temple, a very expensive offering. So here was the plan. They suggested that the Apostle Paul go through this rite of purification with these four Nazarites and that he bear the expense of the offering to the temple. And that way it would reveal his continued support of the Jewish practices and customs and the critics would be silenced and Paul would be exonerated. That was the plan. But the result of the plan is found in verses 27 through 30. The plan backfired. Now the folks saw Paul in the temple. Rather than commending him for going through the process of purification and all these ceremonial practices, they condemned him for having, they said, brought Gentiles into the temple. So instead of increasing their commendation or their support of the Apostle Paul, the plan backfires and it incites them against him and increases the pressure on him. And the Apostle Paul read head on into the truth that things don't always turn out like he planned. Oftentimes, things go wrong. 
And we can apply that to our lives over and over and over again, can we not? I heard about an elevator operator who was asked the same question over and over again every day. She got tired of answering the same question. The question was, lady, do you have the time? So she brought her a big clock and put it up in the elevator, and they still asked the same question. It was just a different question. They asked, ma'am, is this clock correct? You know, things don't always turn out like you planned. And I heard about a guy who advertised in the classified section of the newspaper for some nighttime security guard for his plant. So he ran this advertisement, wanted nighttime security guard. And one of his friends saw him later and said, did you get any response to the ad in the classified? He said, yeah, the first day we ran it, somebody robbed us. Things don't always turn out like we planned. And a teacher in Sunday school was trying to teach her middle school children the, the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, three persons in one, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And she got this bright idea. She got an egg and she was going to show how this, you know, applies. The shell of the egg is God the Father, the white is God the Son, and the yolk is God the Holy Spirit, three in one. And she broke the egg, marvelous idea. When she broke the egg, a double yolk came out. (laughs) Things don't always turn out like we planned. Not for you, not for the Apostle Paul. Now, what lessons can one learn when things don't turn out like we planned? There are three. The first is that you cannot please everybody. Now, if there was ever a person who was close to the Lord and who sought to follow God's will to the letter, it was this man. If there ever was a person who tried to fit himself into the will of God, it was this man. And yet everywhere he went, even among the brethren, he found folks that didn't like him and opposed him. And in this incident, he literally bent over backwards. He went the second mile. He did everything possible to please everybody involved here. And it just didn't work out because there were some people who had just made up their mind, I don't like this guy and I'm not going to change. You can't please everybody. Now there's a lesson I have had a hard time learning. Because I have really wanted to please everybody. I mean, true story. I have, I have really wanted to do that all my life. I would like to please everybody. And I'm not unlike some of you. You want to please everybody. You would like for everybody to love you. I'm not like some. You know, there are some people who just love a fight. I mean, they'd rather aggravate folks than to eat. They just thrive on a controversy. They like to be in the center of a storm. And if you have a problem, there's a controversy, or there's a fuss going on in the church or wherever, you can just bet on, bet your, you know, the mortgage. That person's going to be right in the middle of it. There's some people who just thrive on that. Not like, I'm not like that. Whether you believe it or not, I'd like for everybody to like me. Not unlike some of you. And that's a lesson we all have to learn. Some of you, when folks criticize you, just go into an emotional tailspin of self-depreciation and self-doubt. 
And you just know that this little criticism is, just confirms everything you've known about yourself, how bad you are and how wrong you are. i got a word for you. Sometimes when people criticize, you're not the problem. The problem is with them. And sometimes folks criticize you because they don't know you. And sometimes folks criticize you because they're jealous of you. And sometimes they criticize you because that's the only way they can bring you down to their level. And the problem is not with you, it's with them. There's an old fable, a parable about a man and his son and a donkey going down the road and the boy was riding on the donkey and the old man was leading. And they met this guy in the road and he just chided that young man for riding. He said, well, you, you need to be leading the Your father needs to be right. He's older than you are. You get down from there. So the boy got down and the father got on. And they went right walking on down the road. He met a second man. And he had compassion on the boy. He said, man, it's hot. You're going to die with heat stroke before you reach the prime of your life. There's enough room for both of you on the donkey. So he got on the donkey and they rode off down the road and met another man. He had compassion on the donkey. He said, you guys ought to be ashamed of yourself. Poor beast. Don't you have any more compassion for helpless animals than that? So they got off. The fable is that they tied his legs together and got a limb and ran him through his legs. And they, were, they hoisted the donkey on their shoulders and they started walking, carrying the donkey. They crossed a rickety bridge and the bridge collapsed and they fell in the river. Now the father and the son escaped, but the donkey drowned because his legs were tied together. And the message of this parable is... That if you listen to everybody and you try to please everybody, your life is going to turn out to be one disaster after another. You can't please everybody. The second truth of this text is that our prejudice blinds us to the truth. Now, the word prejudice comes from the word that means to prejudge, it means to judge beforehand. And it means to judge before you have the facts. To make a decision before you come to the truth. As a matter of fact, when you prejudge something, you never get to the truth. It means to, make a, to, to form an opinion and make a judgment on the basis of what you see or hear. Now, these people didn't have the facts, nor did they desire to find the facts. They saw Paul the day before with a Greek, and they just assumed he was one of them, and they didn't bother to get the facts. And they made a judgment concerning the Apostle Paul pre-fact, pre-truth. I wonder how many of us are like that. I wonder how how many of us have a tendency to judge someone on the basis of what we see from the outside, or what we've heard from someone else, or their association, the color of their skin, how they look and act, how they dress, and we never bother to find out what's on the inside. I wonder how many of us are like that. Brian Harbour tells about when he was going to college, he, he and a bunch of guys hung out at this certain restaurant, and there was this waitress in this restaurant, We'll call her Mary. 
That's what he called her. I don't know if that's her name or not. But it, and, and they liked to cut up with her all the time. They gave her a hard time. She, she loved it. And one day he said they were in there in the restaurant, and she had a stack of dishes and dropped them and just broke them all. And they just seized on the opportunity to really give her a hard time. I mean, they worked her over. They called her clumsy and butterfingers, and they really, they really gave her a rough time. When the last person had his say, she said, I'm sorry, guys, I guess I've got tears on my fingers, for I just found out that my son was killed this morning. I wonder how many times you and I judge someone as stupid and clumsy and unbelieving and ignorant and never, ever bother to find out what's on the finger or what's in the heart. Our prejudice blinds us to the truth. There's one last truth from this text. I guess the most important of all is this, that no failure ever needs to be final. What I'm trying to give you this morning is something to take into the new year. And I want you to take this truth. No failure ever needs to be final. Now what happens? How do you respond when you fail? What, how do you respond to a disappointment in life? I mean, when things don't turn out like you plan, how do you respond to that? When the problem is perceived and the plan is presented and it backfires on you? How do you respond to that? There is no more important question than that. I was visiting with one of, my, one of our members this week and he was telling about an editorial he uh, had read that said that when we stand at heaven's entrance, we're not going to be asked, Gerald, what happened to you in life? We're going to be asked, how did you respond to what happened to you in life? Now, did the Apostle Paul ever experience failure? And was he ever misunderstood? And did his best plans just crash and burn at his feet? That's exactly what happened. But if you read the rest of this book you'll discover that that didn't stop him, for he understood that no failure was final. As a matter of fact, it intensified his desire to win the people that had the rumor going on about him. That's how he responded to it. No failure ever has to be final. Now, the Bible is filled with illustrations of that. I'm thinking this morning of a young man named John Mark. He was there when Jesus was arrested in the garden. He was an eyewitness to fact. Most people believe that, that the gospel of Mark, you know, is, is written because um, Peter and Mark got together concerning what they understood about Jesus. When the disciples met in the upper room after the resurrection, they met in John Mark's house. He was right on the end there. And so when the first missionaries went out, Paul and Barnabas, they took John with them, John Mark. And they went up and down the island of Cyprus. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll discover that they preached in every city in Cyprus and had tremendous results. But at the end of that missionary expedition through Cyprus, John Mark quit and went home. He failed. 
So great was his failure that the Apostle Paul refused to take him with him on the next missionary journey. But, if you, but you know, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story, that that failure was not final. As a matter of fact, the one person Paul requested to see in prison was John Mark. No failure needs to be final. Thomas Edison started out selling newspapers on a western railroad. He, he, he lost, you know why he lost his job? He spilled some, spilled some acid in a baggage car and caught it on fire, got fired. And that failure turned him to an interest in telegraphy and scientific research. He was almost deaf, so he would go into a library, start on the bottom shelf, read every book on the bottom shelf, move up to the next shelf, read every book on that shelf. You know the rest of the story. John Wesley wanted to be a missionary, so he came to Georgia to convert the American Indian. It was a terrible failure. He went home a failure. But out of that frustration, he found personal salvation. And out of that failure was born the Methodist Church. Abraham Lincoln wanted to be a success as a lawyer and wanted to ascend to the top. At the age of 46, as an attorney, he was a failure. He wrote in his diary, I am the world's colossal failure. And by coincidence or accident, he turned to the root that led him to the White House. John Creasy, the author, received 743 rejection slips from publishers, but he kept on writing. In fact, he wrote 560 books after that and sold 60 million copies. No failure needs to be final. Victor Hugo was banished by the French emperor and spent 20 years exiled on the island of Guernsey. And there in the loneliness of soul, he wrote Toilers of the Sea, Les Miserables, and others. At first, he said, I was bitter. And then with a laugh, he said, I should have been banished earlier. You know Yogi Berra, Hall of Famer. When he broke into the big leagues, he was small and slow. He played catcher, and he was wild. As a matter of fact, one day when he tried to peg out a runner at second base, he hit the pitcher in the chest, and he was bent over to let the throw go through. One day he beamed the umpire at second base, and he was ten feet from the bag. He was a failure. And he kept on working at it. In fact, he studied over and over again the weakness of every player. And he went for extra practice throwing to second base. The result was that he played on 14 championship teams. He was three times most valuable player and set 18 World Series records. No failure is final. Einstein's own parents thought he was retarded. And he failed everything at school except math. And his professor, his teacher, told him that he ought to find some trade to get into. Phillips Brooks wanted to be a teacher. His schoolmaster said, There is nothing about Phillips Brooks that will enable him ever to be a teacher. He was a failure and became one of America's greatest pulpiteers and hymn writers. No failure is final. Somebody one day asked Paul Harvey, what is the secret of your success? He is a successful news commentator. His voice, his style has made him successful. You know what his answer was? 
He said, I hope I achieve enough of what the world calls success so that when I'm asked what is the secret of my success, I can give them my answer. The answer is this, when I fall down, I get up. And so an old monk came down from the monastery in the hills down to the village to buy some groceries. And a little old lady saw the monk and she could not resist the question. She said, what do you monks do up there in that monastery all day long? And he said, what do we do in the monastery all day long? We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. You know what he was saying? He's saying everybody fails, but that doesn't mean you have to be a failure. Now there's not a person here this morning that has not failed or will fail in the year ahead. What do you do when failure comes? Perhaps you failed as a parent. You just throw up your hands and quit. Perhaps you failed as a Christian. What do you do? Just give up? Perhaps you failed in marriage. What do you do? Say, this is the end of the world? You get up. You fall down and you get up. You fall down and you get up because you understand woven into life is the fact that no frustration is final. No failure is final. And the reason we know that for truth is is because God is always at the business of beginning again. Consider the caterpillar. The remarkable transformation that takes place when he encases himself or itself in a homemade casket and dies. And all of a sudden, his, the hair of that caterpillar is changed to scales a million per square inch. And the many legs of the caterpillar changed to six legs of a butterfly. And the yellow color turns to a brilliant, beautiful red. And the instinct to crawl changes to the instinct to fly. All in the process of being transformed. So what happens is this, that a person comes to God, bringing his life to God, with all of his highs and lows, with all of his successes and failures, and says, oh, if there were some land of beginning again, where all of my heartaches and all of my mistakes and all of my foolish pride could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never picked up again. Well, there is a land of beginning again. And that is at the place where God takes the failure, the mistake, the miss, and transforms it something beautiful, something good. It can only happen when you yield yourself to Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that You will take our lives today and mold them and shape them. 
even our failures and our mistakes. All we have to offer is brokenness and strife. Please, Lord, make something good out of our life. I pray today, Father, that there will not be a single person to leave here with in despair and hopelessness, but who will bring their life to Thee say, Lord, here it is. I want You to make it and remake it. For I ask in Jesus' name for His sake. There are three kinds of invitations. One is for you to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. Experience personal salvation. Maybe all the things that have happened to you are just God's way of trying to bring you to the reality that, that you need Him. and You need to give your heart and life to Him. Don't go away and make the tragic mistake that's unforgivable, and that's to reject Jesus as your Savior. Perhaps you need to come today in the beginning of this new year to say, I want to bring my life to the control of God, surrender to Him. Rededication of your life, perhaps you want to come and join our fellowship, our church. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.